Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Facebook, though I don't really post there anymore, and you can find me on Twitter at ERB underscore VFR, where I will sometime, someday spend more time again. Okay, let's take a second for the obligatory chats about COVID-19. You may have heard reports that pets can be infected with SARS coronavirus 2, the virus that causes COVID-19. While this is true, there is no reason to be concerned. Cats and occasionally dogs have been infected by their human owners. However, they exhibit extremely mild symptoms and have all recovered completely. Importantly, there is no evidence that cats or dogs can pass the disease back to a human. And again, such infections of pets are very rare. You've probably heard about it because it is such a rare occurrence and so is of note. Also, you may have heard some people talking about how the virus has mutated to become more infectious. There is no solid evidence yet that this is true. The preprint paper that sparked the headline has been widely criticized by other researchers who argue that the data presented doesn't support the author's conclusions. While a second strain of the SARS coronavirus 2 has been gaining hold in the population, there's nothing solid to suggest that this is because it's more infectious. It could simply be a mutation that is neutral but has been carried forth for other reasons. For instance, there was a scare during the last Ebola outbreak where researchers feared that a mutation had made it more infectious, but it turned out that the new mutation had no effect on how it infected subjects. So until we have more data, there is no reason to suggest that we should be worried. And of course, this is something that's kind of become a problem um, more generally where because this is a new disease, because there's so many people working on it, there's a lot of data um, circulating on preprint websites, which means that they haven't yet been pre haven't yet been peer reviewed. It means that they're putting them out there for people to look at, but they have not gone through the peer review process, and that is the part where people look at the data and actually are able to confirm or to question whether or not the conclusions by the authors are actually backed up by their data. Because, of course, the conclusion is an interpretation. And so the other researchers who have looked at the data don't think that that interpretation is the most parsimonious, at least yet. We don't know. We need more evidence. Now for a bit of good news for us locals. Hampshire County seems to actually be one of the less hard hits by the outbreak thus far. We only have 580 confirmed cases, which yes, is only, unfortunately, with this, and 47 deaths as of yesterday. Now, this shows that as a community, we have been doing a good job with social distancing. 
Okay, this may be somewhat tempered by the fact that some of those who live in Hampshire County may be seeking medical care in Hamden County, but I'm choosing to see this as good news and that we are taking this seriously and actually keeping our curve flat enough. This is especially good since the bad news is that there has been an uptick in cases and it may be that this is going to end up being a second wave of infections. Again, we don't have the numbers yet. I had been looking the last couple of days and they just haven't had a chance to update things in a way that I can say yes or no about. And again, as I've said in every show before, I am not an expert. I decided to talk a little bit more about it tonight because I think it's important. And frankly, it's everywhere um, in all of the uh, news stories, all of the science websites. It's hard to find anything else to talk about because so many people aren't actually able to do their other science at the moment. Um, And so we definitely need to be vigilant now more than ever. So some of this might be being caused by social distancing fatigue with more people trying to venture out. I saw a picture the other day of protesters both in Boston and New Hampshire trying to force the states to reopen. This is not a good idea. So again, please, for the safety of everyone, maintain social distancing until experts tell you that it's okay to go back to normal life. Now, I know that since the weather is getting better, it is going to be increasingly hard to stay at home. But again, it really is the best for everyone. Though, If you can get out and get some sun while maintaining proper distancing at home, that might be helpful, as there are some early indications that vitamin D deficiencies may be linked to worse outcomes in COVID-19 patients. However, vitamin D deficiencies are also linked to older people and those with darker skin who also are more likely to have comorbidities such as diabetes, which are known to impact health outcomes during COVID-19 infections. Again, because there's a correlation, it doesn't mean that there's causation involved here. However, it may still be worth it to, to make sure you're getting a bit of sun each day. Now, of course, you wanna make sure that you're not out for too long and it's best to be out early in the morning or late in the evening when the sun isn't quite as strong and definitely wear sunscreen. Studies show that wearing sunscreen doesn't affect the body's ability to produce vitamin D because it's very easy for the skin to be able to get enough sun even with sunscreen on in order to get um, the requisite amount in order to be able to start the process that creates vitamin D. Given vitamin D's rare side effects and its relatively wide safety margin, it may be an important, inexpensive, and safe adjuvant therapy for many diseases, say the authors of a recent narrative review of the nutrient in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. So a safe dose of sun or a supplement may be worth it. Supplements are also very cheap. Um, And so, yeah, I think that it doesn't hurt, but as long as you're doing it the right way. Um, Make sure you're wearing sunscreen. Make sure you're not just sitting out in the sun for hours on end. Um, Skin cancer is still also a very real and important thing to worry about. Okay, so uh, to end our COVID-19 section tonight, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, For those keeping score, Elon Musk is still a viable 
excuse me, still a viable candidate for worst billionaire, with his recent tweets suggesting that we should open for business again, and his attempts to shut down a reporter who asked a NASA administrator about Musk's recent comments, and how that reflects on the fact that SpaceX is one of the private companies being given millions of dollars to develop technologies for the Artemis mission to return men to the moon. But have no fear, because Jeff Bezos is also trying to give him a run for his money. With a prominent vice president of Amazon recently quitting in disgust, as Amazon continues to fire workers who complain about unsafe conditions rather than spending money on actually making the conditions safer for their workers, despite the fact that they are making money hand over fist right now. So one of the things I plan to do and... I encourage you also to do is to not forget when this is all over and we go back to normal, quote unquote, there are companies who have done the right thing and companies that have not done the right thing. And I personally plan to remember that. Um, That is definitely something that I think is important. Your mileage may vary, but let's move on now and talk about non-pandemic related stories. So I wanted to start tonight with a story that's been big on the internet. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do want to address the topic of so-called murder hornets. Even some of the websites that I normally check for science stories were referring to them as murder hornets, and that makes me very upset. These are actually giant Asian hornets. Vespa mandarinia, and they have a fierce reputation mainly for their ability to kill large amounts of honeybees. Now, if they were to establish colonies here, it would be problematic. Our European honeybees have not developed a defense against these intruders, but we shouldn't be in panic mode yet because reports suggest that only two hornets have been found in Washington state. There may be a few others, but those haven't been confirmed. And we know that there have also been a few reported from British Columbia. Now, this is, again, not a case where several established colonies have been discovered. The Washington State Department of Agriculture is working to monitor the situation and is keeping beekeepers apprised of developments. And so that's the real worry is for bees. And so Asian honeybees have actually uh, figured out a way to combat the Asian giant hornets. They will create a bee ball around the hornet And then they start uh, vibrating their wings to basically what they do is they raise the temperature around the hornet and they effectively cook it. Um, And so that's a fun and interesting uh, evolutionary uh, development. Now, some of you might be thinking, like I am, that this is hearkening back to the scare in the late 70s, early 80s about killer bees moving north from South America. It's actually still one of my most salient childhood memories um, is being in, I think, fourth grade and reading about killer bees and not being able to shake it for like months on end. It's still slightly 
have a twinge whenever I read or hear about killer bees because I was introduced to them at such a young, informative age without a lot of context. (laughs) And so they did eventually make it to Texas in the Southwest, but they didn't lead to a massive wave of deaths of humans. Now, the hornets are actually most likely have come over from Asia in shipping crates. And again, this does not suggest in any way that the hornets have established colonies in the U.S. Now, let's get back to the aggressive part. You may have heard that they kill up to 50 people a year in Japan. This is true. However, they are not actually aggressive towards humans unless disturbed. Most of those deaths are from people who have allergic reactions to the venom. It also turns out that the Japanese eat the hornets, and so it may be that some of those people killed were actually trying to harvest the insects for food. Apparently, they're tasty, according to Chef Joseph Yoon, founder of Brooklyn Bugs, who notes that we would do well to start thinking of insects as potential food sources rather than simply seeing them as pests. He points to locusts that were once thought of as a viable food source, but are now often poisoned using pesticides instead. There's a lot of opportunities we're missing in how we can maximize and utilize insect protein, Yoon told Gizmodo. It would be a great if an entomologist could collect these hornets for me. We could make a big feast. So there's that. <laughs> okay, let's move on now and talk about another relatively small animal. Researchers wanted to test how anoles, small lizards from the tropics, react when caught in hurricane winds. We weren't really sure, nobody was sure, what an anole is supposed to do in a hurricane, said Colin Donahue, a biologist at Washington State, at Washington University in St. Louis, and lead author of a new paper in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Of course, one can't recreate a hurricane in the lab. But of course, researchers are resourceful. And so, we got a leaf blower set up, and we filmed these lizards as they reacted to those hurricane-force winds, Donahue said. The lizards consistently repositioned themselves around the perch so that they're in the lee. A lot of the time, their back legs would get thrown off, and they'd hold on with just their front legs. Anoles are able to hold on because of the unique features of their toe pads, which provide variable traction according to the size of the pads. Donahue's team wanted to discover how the anole's foot pads might be adapting to increased hurricane activity due to climate change. They traveled in 2017 to Turks and Caicos and began to survey the local anole, Anolis scriptus, and began to see changes. After Irma and Maria barreled through, that was the first indication that hurricanes have driven natural selection, Donahue says. The lizard survivors of the hurricane had traits that differed from the population at large before the hurricane hit. Anoles which did not have sufficiently large pads were unable to grip properly and thus were unable to survive the large hurricanes. The researchers found that the anoles still on the island have larger foot pads than those previously collected from the island. They then extended the research to almost 200 types of anoles 
with ranges from Florida to Brazil and saw similar patterns. Anoles from areas where hurricanes are not a threat maintain smaller towpads compared to species in more dangerous areas. Now, the researchers don't know what the limb is, limit is on towpad growth, but they assume one must exist since at some point it would inhibit their ability to walk, for instance. There must be a trade-off between having big towpads during a hurricane and not having absolutely massive towpads that are so big you can't really be a good lizard, he says. When I talk about being a good lizard, I mean having traits that give you advantages in all of the things you need to survive. Those traits aren't necessarily the same as those traits that help you survive in a hurricane. And so there are many ways that the environment can impact the evolution of a species. Sometimes that change can be very slow and gradual, but sometimes something more extreme happens with the survival of the members of the species best adapted to the change in the environment. And so that change can happen fairly rapidly. Now, this isn't necessarily a case of speciation. The anoles with larger towpads aren't yet a new species at this point. The species itself is evolving without necessarily splitting off into distinct groups that can no longer breed with one another in this population. However, that is the sort of thing that can happen if you, for instance, had Anolis scriptus on two separate islands where one was more exposed to some sort of environmental impact while the other was less exposed, then you could have a situation where the two species eventually become so distinct that they are no longer able to actually breed together. And that is when we generally decide that to animals are different species. Of course, we've talked a lot about taxonomy on this uh, show over the years, and um, nature, of course, abhors being put into bright, shiny boxes. Um, and so there are all sorts of examples from the natural world where we think that we know exactly what's going on, and then we look at the DNA or we look at some other feature of the animal and find out that, um, you know, what we thought was one species, maybe three species. And sometimes it may be that animals that we thought couldn't breed together actually are able to breed together. Um, so I didn't talk about it specifically tonight, but um, there was a bird that was spotted last season which looks like it is a hybrid of two distinctly different birds. Some people actually thought it might be even more than two birds. Um, and so the reason I don't want to talk about it specifically is because the there's researchers who still are not convinced that it actually is a hybrid. And since it hasn't been able to be captured yet, they can't really know. All they can do is look at pictures of it. Um, but it may be that it actually is a hybrid of these two completely different as far as uh, their visual appearance and probably fairly different in their uh, habits, birds that may well have created this hybrid. And so again, nature is messy. It's 
not very good at being neat and tidy and keeping everything in the same box uh, that you think it belongs in. But we keep trying because that's what humans do. We like to label things. We like to tell stories. Um, I was talking to someone the other day and I said to them, you know, that's what humans are. They're storytellers. Um, and it's a little bit hokey, but I do like that and I stand by it. <laughs> okay, let's move on now to human evolution for a moment. New research from the University of Copenhagen suggests that those of us with blue eyes have a common ancestor who had a genetic mutation somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago in the northwest part of the Baltic Sea region. And so this is where Neolithic migrations to Northern Europe would have taken place, which makes sense. Originally, we all had brown eyes, said Professor Hans Eiberg from the Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine. But a genetic mutation affecting the OCA2 gene in our chromosomes resulted in the creation of a switch, which literally turned off the ability to produce brown eyes. The OCA2 gene codes for the P protein, a part of the production of melanin. Melanin is the pigment that colors our hair, skin, and eyes. The switch, which is an SNP or a single nucleotide polymorphism located in the HERC2 gene next to the OCA2 gene, doesn't actually knock out the OCA2's genes function completely. Rather, it causes the melanin production to be reduced, effectively diluting the amount of brown pigment in the iris. This is important because if the mutation had fully turned off the gene, it would have actually led to albinism. Now, brown and green eyes are determined by the variation of the amount of melanin available in the iris. But for blue-eyed people, the amount of melanin is almost always the same limited amount. From this, we can conclude that all blue-eyed individuals are linked to the same ancestor, says Eiberg. They have all inherited the same switch as exa at exactly the same spot in their DNA. Now, comparatively, those with brown and green eyes have a much larger vi variation of alleles, which controls the amount of melanin in the iris. And of course, this then suggests that there are multiple points of mutation. Basically, the amount of brown, brown and green-eyed people, because they have such a greater variety of mutation available on their genome, it means that they can have, there were different ancestors that at some point had each of these different mutations, and they have led to a variety of um, ancestors, but not all of them are linked to a single individual. Now, Einberg has actually been working on this gene since 1996. And so his team examined mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited along matrilineal lines from individuals from some, several areas, including Jordan, Denmark, and Turkey. Now, the main work was done on 155 blue-eyed individuals from Denmark. They found that 97% of the blue-eyed Danes had the same haplotype along with seven unrelated subjects from Jordan and Turkey. Now a haplotype is basically just a genetic set of 
genetic markers. Um, so you might have heard of this in regards to doing um, ancestor tracing. And so a lot of times it will say that you're part of haplogroup A or haplogroup uh, G or things like that. And it just means that you are part of a series of people with the same kinds of genetic mutations. So they also found, actually, while they were there, a candidate for the regulation of hair color. Now, more research will be needed on that front since they were actually looking into the eyes. But I do want to stick with the eyes because new research this week also notes that a subset of retinal neurons actually sends inhibitory signals to the brain. Up until now, it was believed that the eye was only capable of sending excitory signals to the brain. And so researchers at Northwestern University have found that this subset of neurons is connected to subconscious behaviors such as pupil constriction when exposed to bright light and the sinking of circadian rhythms to the light-dark cycle of the environment. These inhibitory signals prevent our circadian clock from resetting to dim light and prevent pupil constriction in low light, both of which are adaptive for proper vision and daily function, said Northwestern's Tiffany Schmidt, who led the research, which was published in the May 1st issue of Science. We think that our results provide a mechanism for understanding why our eye is so exquisitely sensitive to light, but our subconscious behaviors are comparatively insensitive to light. Schmidt, an assistant professor of neurobiology at Northwestern's Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences, worked with Takuma Sanada, a former PhD student in the Northwestern University's Interdepartmental Neuroscience Program, who is the paper's first author. The researchers blocked the retinal neurons responsible for inhibitory signaling in a mouse model. When these neurons were blocked, dim light was more easily able to shift the mice's circadian rhythms. This suggests that there is a signal from the eye that actively inhibits circadian rhythms realignment when environmental light changes, which was unexpected. Schmidt said, this makes some sense, however, because you do not want to adjust your body's entire clock for minor perturbations in the environments in the environmental light dark cycle. You only want this massive adjustment to take place if the change in lighting is robust. They also found that when the neurons were blocked, the mice's eyes were much more sensitive to light. Our working hypothesis is that this mechanism keeps pupils from from constricting in very low light, Sonata said. This increases the amount of light hitting your retina and makes it easier to see in low light conditions. This mechanism explains, at in least part, why your pupils avoid constricting until bright light intensifies. So it turns out that our ideas about the eye are still evolving, which of course is true about most everything. Um, Part of the reason that I'm able to have a show each week is that we keep finding out new and interesting things. But to that end, we do need to take a break and do some PSAs and show promos. And so I will be back in just a minute. You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM 
in Northampton. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. And we are back, and we're going to shift gears. So last week we talked about a couple of fossil uh, finds, including a newly discovered fossil tail for Spinosaurus, which of course was very exciting because it leads us to believe that Spinosaurus was in point of fact the newest and greatest dinosaur swimmer, or actually the only dinosaur swimmer uh, that we have found so far, which is kind of awesome and slightly terrifying (laughs) because Spinosaurus is a big, terrifying dinosaur. And to know that it was also able to swim in the water, much like a crocodile, makes it even more terrifying. But let's move on to this week. This week, we're going to talk about a reanalysis of a fossil found in Dorset, England in the 19th century. It turns out that it is quite a spectacular specimen, which preserves a 200 million year old vignette of a squid-like creature getting ready to eat a fishy dinner. Now the two species are Clarkiatuthis montefiori, a diplobelid or early cephalopod from the Jurassic period, which resembles a modern squid or cuttlefish, and actually also even had its own ink sac, so was pretty much a uh, early form of cephalopod. And Dorothy Ichthyus, Dorothy Ichthyus, sorry, Betchai, which is a herring-like fish. And so the specimen has been housed in the collection of the British Geological Survey in Nottingham, England. Malcolm Hart, the lead author of the new paper and an emeritus professor of paleontology at the University of Plymouth, describes the fossil's amazing frozen scene with the arms of the cephalopod wrapped around its prey. In addition, the head of the fish was actually crushed, which actually suggests that the battle had been won by the cephalopod and it was, frankly, about to have dinner. Since the 19th century, the Blue Leas and Charmouth mudstone formation of the Dorset coast has provided large numbers of important body fossils that inform our knowledge of coleoid paleontology. In many of these mudstones, specimens of paleobiological significance have been found, especially those with the arms and hooks with which the living animals caught their prey. This, however, is a most unusual unusual, if not extraordinary fossil, as predation events are only very occasionally found in the geological record, 
It points to a particularly violent attack, which ultimately appears to have caused the death and subsequent preservation of both animals, he noted. Now, we can't know how it was that these two creatures ended up being buried in a way that allowed them to be fossilized, but hooray, because it is an extraordinary fossil. Um, And just as an aside, because we're talking about uh, the Dorset Coast, I immediately, whenever I think about the Dorset Coast, I think about Mary Anning, um, who is, of course, the inspiration for the rhyme about uh, she sells seashells by the seashore. Um, And so Mary Anning was a very famous... um, fossil hunter and she was actually one of the first people to really be going out onto this coast and finding fossils and would bring them to um, the scientists of the day some of whom weren't really convinced that uh, these were uh, ancient animals but uh, we can have a whole conversation about um, her uh, some other day Mary Anning is very cool and um, I know I've talked about her, but it was years ago. So maybe we'll do a story about her sometime in the near future. Okay, but getting back to our uh, cephalopod friend here. The author suggests two possible for s- scenarios for how the creatures might have ended up buried. First, that the cephalopod died in the act of eating the fish. Perhaps it was too big and so it just couldn't swallow it properly. Or it may have died while trying to secret the food away from other predators and was overtaken by anoxic water with too little oxygen on the seafloor. Now, the first scenario does happen. Um, One of my favorite shows I was watching um, one day, and it's a show about fishing, and it's not as bad as it seems. Um, (laughs) I always feel slightly apologetic when I talk about it, but it's a good show um, called River Monsters. And one one of the episodes, there was a fish and it had a giant fish stuck in its uh, in its jaws and it was clearly not going to be able to finish the meal and didn't seem to be able to do anything else with it. And so we've also found other fossils where you have this situation where one fish is clearly stuck in another fish's um, jaws. And so that does happen. Now, the second scenario is actually kind of unlikely because other fossils that have been found in this level of sediment are creatures that would have required oxygen to survive and grow. So if they were on the seafloor, They were presumably able to grow to some point before they died and were fossilized. There had to have been enough oxygen for them to do this. Now, one of the things that's really cool about this is because, as I noted last week about giant ground sloths, fossils like this that give us a rare glimpse into behavior and also in this case, as a bonus, the anatomy of a soft-bodied animal are very rare. And so that's really cool that there's a lot of these fossils here of these sort of um, colloid um, cephalopods because 
it's really rare to have soft-bodied preservation. And so while we obviously have the um, chitinous hooks that are being preserved, there's still that ability to sort of see how the arm would have been articulated based on the um, positioning of those hooks. And so it's really great to see both those, the types of hooks that the arms contained and also, it actually confirms that they did, in fact, eat fish. Hart notes that, um, as noted, the, the specimen was on loan from the British Geological Survey and in Lyme Regis Museum, where it was studied. It is glued in a case and so can only be looked at or imaged. Now, this, of course, is unfortunate. It means that you can't do isotopic or geochemical analyses um, on the specimen, but it's still amazing nonetheless. And so the fossil is now the oldest containing a diplobelid in the act of predation. The second oldest, because apparently there are a few others, is now more than 10 million years younger. The fossil was found in sediments dated to the Cenomurian age between 190 and 199 million years ago. The predation is off the scale in terms of rare occurrence, said Hart. There are only a few, a very few specimens between five and ten known from the Jurassic. And this is only this, this is the only one from this stratigraphical level in Dorset. It is also the oldest known in any part of the world. So that is very cool. Okay, let's move on now and talk about a weird but important part of archaeological and paleontological studies, coprolites. So tonight we're going to focus on their role in the archaeological record. Now, coprolites is the fancy scientific name for fossilized or otherwise preserved poop. <laughs> and while it may seem unpleasant to think about researchers studying poop, it's actually a really important tool for archaeologists to be able to learn more about the health and diet of ancient and not so ancient populations. And so ancient remains can contain parasites and other microorganisms, along with the remains of foodstuffs, which give us insight into the diets of populations. There's one big issue though. Dog feces are apparently very similar to humans. An international team of scientists have created a method of combining host DNA and gut microbiome analysis with an open source machine learning algorithm. And so this is exciting because work has been going on on dealing with how to differentiate these since the 70s. Because again, it's really important to be able to try and gather the information that these samples give us. And so originally only those samples that were found in areas that contained human remains or in obvious latrine areas, while those found were able to be um, determined to be human, those found in trash deposits were harder to define. Now work has been done to define the morphology of, of mammal feces, and that's helped with other species, but dogs are still a problem. Some ancient people ate dog meat, and some dogs are known to eat human feces, so this can further complicate the identification. However, dog feces typically contain masses of short, 
nibbled dog hairs and odd inclusions such as fragments of cloth of clothing and rope the authors of the Pierre J paper wrote the corresponding authors of the paper were Maxime Bory and Christina Warriner from the Department of Archaeogenetics at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, Germany. Now they go on to note that certain parasites are generally found only in one or the other species. So for instance, pinworms are typically only found in human remains. Now, scanning electron microscopy can also aid in identifying plant remains in ancient samples, and by rehydrating the samples, researchers generally find that human samples turn the hydration solution brown or black, while animal samples generally remain clear or turn yellow. Now, the new identification method, called COPRO-ID, combines host DNA analysis with analysis of two distinct colonies of, micro of microbes that inhabit the guts of humans and dogs, respectively. They looked at both a previously sequenced modern fecal data set, as well as a newly sequenced data set of coprolites and sediments from archaeological digs, which included 20 archaeological samples, 13 coprolites, four sediments, and three sediments from human pelvic bone, taken from 10 sites spanning from prehistory to the medieval era, with 17 of the samples having never been previously sequenced. Interestingly, their modern samples came from a health study of patients with type 1 diabetes in Boston, along with a more general study of human gut micro microbiomes from work conducted in the West African nation of the Republic of Burkina Faso. Now, using various data sets, using these various data sets and the program they'd created, the researchers found that they could distinguish between both fecal and non-fecal matter, as well as sorting many of which were of human origin and which were of canine origin. One expected finding in our study is the realization that the archaeological record is full of dog poop, noted Warriner. And so the results were that seven of the 13 examples of coprolites were identified, with five coming from humans and two from canines. The non-poop samples were labeled correctly as unknown, and six were left as unidentified. Now, three of the unidentified were unidentified because they had insufficient amounts of preserved microbiome. And it turns out that the other three were uh, unidentified because they were basically too close to call. They had both high levels of dog DNA, but also a human microbe, a more human microbiome signature. And so these samples came from a site in the Rio Zape Valley of Durango, Mexico. These samples could have originated from a human who consumed a recent meal of canine meat, the author suggested. Dogs were consumed in ancient Mesopotamia, but further research on the expected proportion of dietary DNA in human feces is needed to determine whether this is a plausible explanation. Now, of course, in ancient Mesopotamia is different from ancient Mesoamerica, so it may be that we just don't know. Now, the other possibility is that the microbiome of the canine from which these remains came 
did not match the one used for a comparison. So a potential uh, shortfalling is that the microbiome came from a study, a single study of laboratory retrievers and beagles. So it could be that there are other dog microbiomes out there, at least, um, or especially from the past. But it still came out pretty well. Identifying human coprolites should be the first step for ancient human microbiome analysis, said Bori, with additional data about the gut metagenomes of non-westernized rural dogs will be better able to classify even more ancient dog feces as in fact being canine as opposed to uncertain. This will help archaeologists to better study coprolites that are of known human origin and may lead to more insights into the evolution of the relationship between humans and dogs as well, which is very exciting because, of course, dogs are a very integral part of human uh, evolution or at least of humans' development in the last uh, few hundred thousand years. And so maybe not that much. I forget exactly when we first started hanging out with dogs. So don't quote me specifically on that one. But we have been hanging out with dogs for a very long time and cats as well. Um, And so both animals have lent themselves very well to human existence. And so I was reading a little bit about some of the animals that are doing new and interesting things now that humans aren't around. Uh, So uh, a lot of the national parks have been reporting that they have animals doing things that they would never normally do if there were people around, like lounging around on sidewalks and hanging out near roads. And um, I was just thinking about all of the animals that have adapted to living actually with humans while they're there. So uh, I've been having a fight, which I might have mentioned uh, with a squirrel, trying to get at my bird feeder, which I am losing, by the way. Um, And so I think about sort of squirrels and chipmunks and birds, you know, I love the idea of these animals that have kind of convinced us to take care of them. So dogs and cats and the birds that I feed and things like that. Um, I do love the idea that they've sort of uh, convinced us to take care of them so they don't have to take care of themselves. And of course, this is absolutely anthropomorphizing in a way that is completely not scientific in any way, shape or form. Again, this goes back to the sort of idea of being a storyteller. Um, And so there's some, um, there's always been some theory about that with plants, certain plants too, have sort of done things, quote unquote, to convince us to propagate them rather than them having to do any kind of actual work. Um, I think Michael Pollan was very into that in his first book, is that uh, he was very much of the opinion that animal, uh, that plants have basically uh, sort of convinced us to take care of them. And again, this is just sort of a a fun way to think about it. It's not scientific in any way, shape or form. But I do think about those animals and how they've kind of become indispensable to us. 
uh, especially those dogs and cats and other animals that we know and love in our own homes. All right, let's move on and talk about a completely different aspect of bacteria. Researchers have engineered bacteria which can produce new versions of a potent antibiotic molecule, including some that have an impressive anti-malarial properties. Now, despite widespread action against the disease for over 100 years, in 2018, there were still 228 million cases of malaria and 405,000 deaths. Now, of course, we can compare that to COVID-19 measures at this point, and, you know, malaria is still winning hands down. Now, the new method for making drug molecules faster and cheaper was developed by researchers at the Imperial College London, who published about this new method in the journal Antimicrobial Agents and Chemotherapy. Not only is malaria still widely distributed, the plasmodiums that cause the disease are actually also becoming more resistant to current drug treatments, and therefore new approaches are crucial. The most deadly strain is called P. falciparum, and researchers have found that a molecule called violacine is able to kill it in the blood stage. Violacine is naturally occurring in some bacteria, but has thus far been difficult to isolate and purify. The researchers have found a way to engineer E. coli bacteria to, pr- to produce violacine by inserting the gene that codes for enzymes that make violacine into the genome of the E. coli. Now, not only do the E. coli now produce violacine much more cheaply and easier, but depending on what the food they're given, they actually produce different forms of the molecule. The researchers then tested these variants and found that one of them was around 20% more efficient than the original version of the substance. Lead author Dr. Mark Wilkinson from the Department of Life Sciences at Imperial said, We urgently need new drugs to fight malaria, but the process takes a long time when promising new molecules are hard to obtain with traditional chemistry. By By combining synthetic biology with high throughput screening, we are able to cut out some of the expensive chemistry, allowing us to not only make molecules more easily, but also to discover derivatives of of those molecules that may be even more potent. And so the team is now working on deriving the mechanisms by which violacine and its variants kill the parasite. Knowing what the molecules target what the molecule targets will make it easier to develop the drug further and potentially to find other molecules which can also work against that same target. And so they believe that it works by changing the behavior of a protein which helps the um, which helps the um, parasite to create its cytoskeleton, which is the structure that helps cells maintain their shape. And so hopefully this will lead rapidly to more breakthroughs and potentially a drug, say within the next decade. Now I know that sounds like a long time and it may be sooner, but I always like to stress how drug development can be a long road, even when 
the initial results are extremely promising. It's one of the sad realities of COVID-19 that we won't be able to magically produce a vaccine or drugs to combat the actual infection for some time. But modern medicine is pretty impressive, and I have no doubt that we will be able to create a vaccine at some point in the nearish future. Uh, Again, this goes back to sort of the just say it's in rats uh, Twitter account where a lot of really impressive things are found in mouse models or rat models and they are not actually yet ready for any kind of clinical trial. Um, Again, I've talked about how many times you have clinical trials that look really, really promising in uh, animal models, and then it gets to human trials, and it immediately just fizzles. And so, unfortunately, there's just not a lot we can do about that. We just have to keep moving forward and continuing to try and devise new ways to deal with these issues. And so, um, I think that this has a lot of potential, though. It's really exciting. And so, hopefully, it will really be able to help us to develop more and better ways to combat malaria because it is still one of the largest killers of humans um, despite the fact that we've been trying to combat it pretty much forever. Um, As long as as there have been humans pretty much, it seems like there has been malaria. Um, And so it's definitely something that would be good to finally be able to conquer. All right, let's move on now and shift again to a bit of specific archaeology. So we talked a little bit more about a general archaeological idea earlier. And so this is about Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, which was sunk after 30 years of service by the French in 1545. Now, at the time, Henry actually tried to get them to raise it uh, because apparently it was his favorite ship and he wanted it back. But unfortunately, they didn't have the technology then. And so after a while, it was forgotten and it was sort of rediscovered a couple of times over history. But it was really rediscovered at the end of the 1970s. And so it was actually raised along with thousands of artifacts in 1982 and has been housed housed in a dry dock and then they turned that dry dock into a specially dedicated museum um, in Portsmouth, England. And so creationists, sorry, conservationists have continued to work on artifacts recovered from the ship as well as the ship itself ever since then. And so a new report in the journal Synchroton Radiation tells of high energy x-ray analysis of chain link of chain mail links that were salvaged by a team of British scientists and have been found to consist of materials similar to modern brass alloys with traces of gold and lead which have yet to be positively sourced. This study clearly shows the power of combining sophisticated techniques such as those available at a synchrotron source, said co-author Eleanor Schoenfield, 
Head of Conservation at the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, we can glean information not only on the original production, but also on how it has reached to being in the marine environment and, crucially, how effective the conservation strategies have been. Now, the links studied included two twisted loops of brass wire and three linked flat washers that appeared to be made of copper or copper alloy. They had all undergone different cleaning and or anti-corrosion treatments after recovery. Distilled water, a benzotriazolone solution, and ultrasonic cleaning, allowing these methods to also be compared. And so the British team used the XMAS X-ray Materials Sciences beamline at the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in Grenoble, France, to examine the surface chemistry of the links. And so synchrotron radiation is a thin beam of high-intensity X-rays generated in a particle accelerator. The intensely fast beams are able to X-ray the substance being examined in great detail. They found that the links were made from an alloy of 73% copper and 27% zinc. According to co-author Mark Dowsett, emeritus professor at the University of Warwick, this is quite a modern alloy composition, and he was surprised at the technical proficiency shown. We had three completely different samples, and the analysis was the same, he noted. As for the trace elements, Dowsett suggests that the lead may be a remnant of World War II bombing, or may have been dust from lead balls used in 16th century guns and pistols. The gold most likely came from tooling. Gold is very soluble in brass, so if you added gold to the alloy, you would never see it as a separate material, he said. We saw crystalline gold. That tells you there are pure gold particles on the surface that presumably came from tooling used to work the piece of arm the armor was made from. And how did the conservation techniques hold up? Overall, the measurements confirm the effectiveness of over three decades of the different storage arrangement, arrangements and conservation treatments applied to these artifacts, the authors wrote. This knowledge can inform the conservation strategies employed when treating such materials from a marine environment. They also discovered that artifacts should be potentially blanketed in helium and perhaps hit with a slightly lower energy beam as ozone and nitrogen dioxide were produced when the items were hit with the x-ray beam. And so those are both reactive gases, so they can potentially react with the um, object and cause changes to it. They also found a way in which they were able to get really intense detail. Um, and so this technique is definitely going to be useful in the future. It is fascinating to examine ancient technology using specially developed analytical methods, which can then be applied to modern materials too, said co-author Mikey Adrians of Ghent University of her involvement in the project. It was also a real privilege to be allowed access to these unique artifacts and to play a part in unraveling their story. All right, that's all the time we have for tonight. So please do continue to listen and I will be back next week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. 
To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.